you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. Good morning, it's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Julia Paskin, filling in for Austin Cross. Thanks so much for being with us this Friday. Women in the U.S. have served their country for decades, contributing to every branch of the military, but their accomplishments also come with a history of struggle. And for many, that struggle continues after their service is over. So to conclude Air Talk's week-long coverage on veterans, we are talking about women and the issues they face when entering civilian life. A little history to get us started here. When President Truman signed the Women's Armed Services Integration Act in 1948, women could legally join all four branches of the military. But being included was not the end of the fight. They still had to contend with exclusion from certain roles and expectations that a completely male military thought women should be limited to. Integration was hard fought over the decades. Women could join service academies beginning in the 1970s. They started serving on Navy combat ships in the 90s. Only in 2013 were women allowed to serve in combat roles for every branch. Even so, there's still a lot of work to do to obtain gender parity among all of the voluntary army. So today on Air Talk, we take a look at how life in the military has affected women veterans once they've rejoined the civilian world, a little bit more about their struggles, what they miss about the military, and what about such a high-pressure environment prepared them for the realities of back home. So if you have questions about women veterans, or if you yourself are a woman and have served in the military, please call us, send your comments, and share your experience today. Give us a call this morning at 866. 866- Six eight nine three five seven two two, or you can email us at atcomments at laist.com. Please do include your name and location. Joining us, we have a number of distinguished guests. We're going to start today with Sonner Kurt, who is an investigative reporter for the national news, news website, The War Horse, which covers active service members and veterans. Sonner, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So you write about topics concerning active service members and veterans. In your reporting, talk to us a little bit about what are some of the larger issues that rise to the top for women when coming back to civilian life. I think that a lot of the faces or a lot of the issues that women face when they're leaving active duty and transitioning to sort of being veterans, being being back in civilian life are the same things that veterans sort of face broadly, but but filter through the the lens of gender, Um, you know. Only about 10% of veterans are women, so it's it's really a, a minority population. And there are certain experiences that women have in the military that can make the transition to civilian life um, a little bit more difficult. Kind of the first one that comes to mind is the military's sort of persistent problem with sexual assault, sexual harassment, military sexual trauma, um, which is something that the military branches, the Pentagon, have promised time after time after time to fix, um, but the problem appears to actually only be getting worse. Um, so that's a big thing that comes up in my reporting. Um, there's also sort of, you know, goes part and parcel with that, but also um, a standalone issue is, is like I said, women are a minority in the military. They're about 
of the active duty force. Uh, that varies a bit by branch. The Marines only have 9% women. Um, and so, you know, being a woman in the military can be an isolating experience. Um, you might not have the same sort of level of group cohesion, especially if you're dealing with sexism. That's, of course, not always the case. Um, and that can also sort of extend to the transition to civilian life. Um, I've talked with women who sort of have to constantly um, defend their veteran status when they when they get out of the military, because when we think of a veteran, we tend to think of a man. Um, and so just sort of being front and center as a woman who served can be um, sort of a unique experience. Um, and then, you know, a couple of other things that come to mind in my reporting that women in the military face that that aren't talked about as much. Um, a big one is fertility issues. Um, this is not a huge part of the conversation, but almost 40% of women on active duty have had fertility problems, um, which is about three times the rate of civilian women. Um, access to reproductive health care is an issue. Um, so there's kind of a, a wide variety of things that that female veterans and, and active duty service women face. Sonar, I'm wondering, do, do you have any um, understanding of why that the infertility rates are so high among women veterans? You know, it's something that could use a lot more research, um, but there are sort of three primary theories. Um, the first sort of most obvious one is exposure, whether that's to chemicals or toxins, women in the military and particularly in different, you know, specific occupational specialties can be exposed to a wide range of, um, of substances. Um, but then there's also uh, higher rates of, of certain prescription uh, medications can be, um, is something that people have talked about. Those can be used for things like treating post-traumatic stress. Um, and then finally, you know, it goes back to, to high rates of sexual trauma as well, um, is something that, that people believe play a role in these high rates. We're speaking with Sonner Kurt, investigative reporter at The War Horse, um, also a Coast Guard veteran yourself. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about the shift uh, from official uh, combat status. It's, it's been about 10 years that women can serve in active combat. So I, I have a kind of a twofold question for you. Um, one, how is that impacting the population of women veterans that are returning now that uh, there are less boundaries in place? But also, I, I've heard from women, women who have served that, um, especially people who have suffered injuries, uh, people who've been awarded Purple Hearts, that there's a perception that they have not been serving in danger or in combat areas. Uh, how do how do people deal with that coming home and not getting that kind of recognition? Yeah, absolutely. This is a, a huge sort of issue. Um, women, you know, have, have served in the military in the United States since the Revolutionary War, um, whether officially or not. Um, and you know, women for a long time in the 90s and 2000s were officially barred from combat. But in reality, in the post 9-11 sort of era, um, in those wars, women were, you know, not officially in combat roles, but they were effectively serving in combat roles. So they were guarding convoys, um, you know, military police units, filling in for infantry units, um, women serving as, as medics or interpreters for, for special operations units. So they were, you know, effectively serving alongside men who were serving in combat. Um, but like you say, because they weren't sort of officially in these positions, that that has ramifications. Um, so, you know, their service was not recognized through awards at the same rate. Um, you know, combat service can help you in your promotions. And then sort of later on getting care, you know, whether you whether you were in combat is, um, you know, is is 
a factor that comes into play. Um, and you're right that, uh, you know, in 2013, so 10 years ago, then Secretary of Defense Liam Panetta removed the ban on women in, in combat. So officially women can serve in combat now, but, you know, that is slow to change. Um, the We still don't have a, um, you know, a female uh, Navy SEAL, um, a lot of units, there's still widespread sexism, harassment, there are still, you know, widespread gender disparity. So even though all roles in the, the military, all combat roles and all roles generally now are open to women, um, you know, the, the impact of not being allowed to serve in combat earlier in their careers has, you know, slowed the promotion of women and, and sort of slowed the, the process of gender equity. I want to bring in another one of our guests right now. Um, Michaela Montoya works with outreach and community relations for the VA office here in Los Angeles and is also an Army combat veteran. Thank you so much for being with us. Do we have her on the line? Michaela, are you with us? Yes. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for being with us here. Um, so, and also, but before um, I ask you a question, I just want to remind our listeners, um, if you have questions about women veterans or you would like to share your experiences about your time in the service, 866-893-5722 or atcomments at las.com. Please include your name and location. So, Michaela, thanks so much for being with us. Um, you work closely with women veterans in L.A. Uh, are there any issues that women face here that are more specific to Los Angeles, and I, I guess I, I, I'm hinting a little bit at our uh, housing crisis in terms of homelessness. Well, I'm, uh, I would say, I mean, a lot of the women veterans have a lot of similar experiences, and here in Los Angeles, um, it, it's, a lot of it has to do with lack of um, availabilities when it comes to housing that is specific for women veterans. Um, can you speak a little bit about uh, the experiences of women veterans accessing benefits at, at the VA? Uh, the benefits are supposed to be largely the same, but is is there any disparity in terms of getting access in a system that is mainly geared towards men? Well, we have a women veterans clinic and uh, a women veterans program manager. And honestly, I've had nothing, but I've heard a lot of just really great things about it. Mm. And the one thing that the VA isn't able to offer, we, we go out into community care, um, which is um, maternity care. Maternity care, okay. And um, in terms of being able to find community, uh, what kinds of ways can the VA help facilitate women veterans uh, having relationships with one another and providing support uh, once reentering civilian life? I think that's a great question, and something that we've been we started doing is we're, we're actually hosting um, women veteran focus groups throughout the area, and uh, hearing from the veterans, and then from the, the feedback that we get directly from the women veterans, we're implementing that out into the community. <clears throat> and and what are you hearing in those focus groups? It sounds like a lot of the women veterans just want to be heard, um, and and. Uh, one of the things that came from it is they want us to host a women veterans brunch. So we're getting with one of the site managers who's also a woman veteran in uh, the mayor's office, and we're going to host a women veterans brunch. Oh, that sounds really cool. Okay. Um, so uh, tell me tell me a little bit more about access to programs um, at the VA. Uh, and again, I'm speaking with Michaela Montoya with the VA office here in L.A. Um, 
In terms of access to uh, homeless services, I've heard from some folks over the years here, specifically women that are veterans, that went to the VA and they said that they did not, this is anecdotal, of course, they said that they did not qualify for uh, housing assistance because they were women and were sent elsewhere. Is that something that you're still seeing? And and if so, um, how, how are you working with that? Well, I don't work in the homeless department, so okay. I can't speak to that, but uh, the qualifications for women veterans and male veterans at the VA, uh, they're the same. They're the same. Okay. Um, I'd like to uh, take a quick break right now. You're listening to Air Talk. We are talking about the issues that women veterans face today. Uh, our guests are Micaela Montoya with the VA Office of Outreach and Community Relations in L.A. Also, Sonner Kurt, investigative reporter at The War Horse. Both women have served. Coming up, we're going to speak with Allison Jaslow of the nonprofit group Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. This is Air Talk. Back in a moment. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. You are listening to Air Talk here on LAist 89.3. I'm Julia Paskin in for Austin Cross. We are talking about women veterans and the issues that they face when returning to the civilian life. We're going to bring in a third person into this conversation right now. We are joined by Allison Jaslow, who is CEO of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. She's also an Army combat veteran. And we'll say that uh, your group's mission is to connect and empower post 9-11 veterans. Allison, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. So as someone who runs a national veterans organization, I'm wondering if you have any perspective on the specific challenges women who have served post 9-11 face when coming home. Well, I think stepping back, you know, one of the greatest challenges that I feel like women veterans face was actually already touched on earlier in this program. Um, you know, when you think of a veteran, you don't think of somebody who looks like me. Um, and so just the basic lack of recognition for women veterans is probably one of the biggest barriers to them getting, you know, the care and support that they need in a variety of different ways. And that's not just healthcare, you know, it's, um, you know, getting battle buddy checks the way that, you know, other male veterans get. Um, and, you know, when it comes to the national stage too, just because I have the opportunity, I'd like to give a shout out to one of your local members of Congress out there. Julia Brownlee has been a leader um, fighting for women veterans in Washington, D.C. And the progress that we've made over the last, let's call it seven years, really couldn't have happened without leadership from her specifically, in addition to another 
you know, many other women, um, there aren't very many women veterans in Congress right now. And so women veterans have really had to lean on our civilian allies to help make progress. Um, but I think some of the challenges that women veterans post 9-11 face are also the same as male veterans. You know, I'm, you're speaking to at least myself who deployed to combat not once, but twice, you know, and there are many other women and male service members who something that's unique to our generation is people dealt with multiple deployments and those multiple deployments come with multiple opportunities to get injured. And they also come with multiple opportunities to break up a marriage or somebody's um, you know, home dynamic. And so I think bigger picture, like our generation of veterans who are all volunteers um, and who've served and sacrificed over and over and over again, um, have kind of a unique problem set all alone. And then, you know, women veterans are a subset of that, of course. We are speaking with Allison Jaslow of the nonprofit Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Please call us and send in your comments, your experiences, 866-893-5722, atcomments at laist.com. Um, you mentioned uh, talking to um, uh, Julie Brownlee here. Uh, you work a lot in D.C. advocating for the rights of veterans. Tell us more about some positions uh, that you have been taking to make some changes to benefit women in the military in the future. Well, I will say that um, one of the things I'm proudest of in terms of our organization taking a bold stance was asking the VA to change its motto, which used to be to care for him who shall have borne the battle and his widow and his orphan. And so for all the women who have felt invisible, um, one of the other guests said that like just being heard, you know, goes a long way. Um, you know, we felt like the very agency that's supposed to support us by its own motto wasn't seen and recognizing women. And it was important to call for that change from the top. Um, that was a victory that we've, we've celebrated at this point. They still have lots of signs to change, but earlier this year, Secretary McDonough did make the change to update it to not only acknowledge uh, women veterans and LGBTQ veterans, but also caregivers as well, um, who rely on the VA, who are carrying a greater burden than most of us even know in caring for wounded veterans, um, but all too often didn't feel seen by the VA as well. Um, and I would say that like, you know, our work facing Washington, D.C. will continue. Um, one of your other guests uh, mentioned, because we also care about fighting for women who are serving too, like we have to be relentless around military sexual assault, um, not only eradicating it from the ranks, but also making sure that women who become veterans aren't re-traumatized by the environment that they have to go seek uh, medical care in afterwards. Um, and if you're getting catcalled at the VA and you're a you know, a, a survivor of military sexual trauma, you can be re-traumatized in the very place that's supposed to support you the most, you know? And so those are things that we are still continuing to keep an eye on at the national level. As as uh, more women have served in the military, and I do wonder why I, there, there was a big increase uh, post 9-11, I'm sure of a lot of people signing up in general, but do you have any insight into why more women signed up at that time? Listen, we all have our unique reasons as to why we stepped up to serve. Um, I do think it's worth noting that women are the fastest growing demographic within the veterans population. Uh, that's in part because more women are serving, but also because older generations are dying off. Um, but I think many women are no different than men, especially after the World Trade Centers were hit. Um, if you 
care deeply about your country. You know, I was already on a pathway to service. Uh, I graduated high school in 2000 and it was my sophomore year of college when I was already in ROTC that the World Trade Center got hit. And so I was already headed into the military, but there are women who just like men wanted to be able to serve their country in this moment, um, in that moment or the years afterwards. And serving in uniform felt like the right thing for them to be doing. And, you know, I'm glad because we rely on all volunteers that, you know, we were sending women onto the battlefield and asymmetrical battlefield anyway, even though, you know, when I served, we weren't allowed to be in quote unquote combat, but I'm glad that for better or worse, these wars and the, the need for volunteers to continue to step up and serve has kind of been a catalyst to helping you know, break down barriers within the military for women's service. So they now can be infantry platoon leaders and soldiers. They can go to ranger school. And, you know, I think it's because of policy changes like that, that we're also, you know, just over, I think it was last week, we celebrated the first woman who made it under the, uh, the joint chiefs mm-hmm. in the Pentagon. Um, the Navy is now led by a woman. And I don't think that that change could have happened uh, it, were it not for us being at war for 20 years, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a good positive outcome of the period that we've just lived through. I want to circle back to um, something that you've all mentioned, or that two of you at least so far have mentioned, is is MST or military sexual trauma, sexual violence that happens while folks are serving. Um, and there is a very high rate. I've read one in three women have experienced this uh, kind of violence. Um, so uh, I want to first ask uh, Michaela Montoya with the VA Office of Outreach and Community Relations. Uh, if someone listening uh, needs support because they have experienced MST, what can they do with the VA to get help? You can go to any VA at any time. It doesn't matter what your VA eligibility status is. We'll see you. There's an MST coordinator at each uh, VA facility, and that's something that a lot of veterans may not know. They may think that maybe they're not VA healthcare eligible, but um, none of that matters when it comes to military sexual trauma. Okay. Uh, we have just a couple of minutes left. Um, I want to come back to Sonner Kurt, investigative reporter at The War Horse. Uh, anything that you'd like to add in terms of what we can do as a culture to give more uh, visibility and respect to the women who have served our country? You know, I think it just to echo sort of what's been said, I think that creating space for for women veterans to be heard, whether that's sort of, you know, at the sort of the the micro level in, you know, small groups at veteran service organizations, um, places that have sort of traditionally been um, more oriented towards men, just sort of creating space for, for women. Um, and then I think, you know, <clears throat> not to uh, go back to this again, but I think that one of the best ways that sort of as a culture, the military and, and the country can show support for women is continuing to support a better environment for women who serve. Because like we mentioned, you know, experiencing sexual trauma can influence the rest of your life um, and, you know, your experiences as a veteran long after you leave active duty. So I think, you know, there have been a lot of policy changes, there have been a lot of promises, um, but until the actual culture um, of the military changes for better sort of gender equity and, and ending sexual assault and sexual harassment, I think that it's going to have ramifications for women veterans. 
I want to thank our guests for being with us today for the conclusion of our series on Air Talk here on Veterans. That was Sonner Kurt, investigative reporter at The War Horse. Uh, also, we had Michaela Montoya with the VA Office of Outreach and Community Relations here in L.A. And Allison Jaslow, CEO of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. I want to thank you all so much for being with us and also thank you for your service. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. When we come back, it is Friday, and so that means Food Friday. So today's Food Friday is going to fall on, very close to, I should say, the Festival of Lights, Diwali. So we've got some tasty treats to celebrate and some tips on where to get those snacks yourself. We'll be back in a moment. Stay with us. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Julia Paskin in for Austin Cross this Friday. This Sunday, for many Hindus, also Sikhs and Jainists across Southern California, will celebrate Diwali, the Festival of Lights. Like many cultures, food and family are a central part of Diwali celebrations as families come together to share meals as well as traditional sweets or mitai, which I hope I pronounced correctly. And since it's Food Friday here at LAist, we thought it would be fun to dive into some of those traditional sweets shared here and to share a few places around Southern California where you can find them. So first, we are joined by Nandita Godbole, who is an entrepreneur and an author of, uh, I'm so sorry if I say this, Masayledar. Uh, You're going to have to say it again for me, which is classic Indian spice blends and other cookbooks. She wrote also a piece for us here at LA is titled For Your Sweet Tooth Diwali Indian Treats Around SoCal. Nandita, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me and happy Diwali to all of your listeners. This is a fabulous time to go check out Indian restaurants around SoCal. You guys, we guys are so blessed. We have so many places to go visit. Oh, that's wonderful. And and you've written a really extensive, wonderful article uh, about that. Can you can you say the title of your book, please? Yes. Uh, my newest book is called Masale Dar classic Indian spice blends. And in this, I explore regional uh, Indian cuisine, not just North and South Indian cuisine, uh, but just, you know, the small nitty gritties of local fare. And it was particularly exciting to tie that into the Diwali sweets piece that I wrote for you guys, because there's so much diversity in 
the Indian cuisine. And it is really exciting to try out these cuisines just through the desserts. You don't have to go through the full meal, although I would strongly recommend it. Um, and so this piece that I wrote is all about trying out different sweets and, you know, getting the hang of what Indian cuisine is all about. Wonderful. So so going back to this article, you've uh, you have lived here. You don't currently live in Los Angeles, but you've spent quite some time here. Um, oh, I back and forth, actually. I do. Oh, you do, do have a place. Yes, yes. Okay, yes. so you have a foot in both worlds. Wonderful. Okay, yes. so you, you say that um, in your article that particularly during Diwali, uh, L.A. is as close to your hometown of Mumbai as anywhere you've lived. Tell us more about that. Uh, yeah, first of all, the traffic is just, you know, <laughs> lovely and crazy, and it kind of reminds me of uh, my hometown of Mumbai. But also, it's so close to the ocean, you can... Um, I grew up in a city that's very multicultural, um, we do have a lot of uh, ethnic enclaves, but even then, the city is very open. It's very welcoming. Uh, it is, you know, the metro for anyone who has a big dream and has a big idea and they come to Mumbai. And I see that replicated or mimicked on the other side of the world here in L.A., where anyone can come here, have a dream and just dream big. And some part of it, you know, depending on how the stars are some part of it happens and it's very exciting to see all these people come from all over the world and you will find little enclaves all over the place wonderful so um let's talk about your article you uh you take us all over southern california of places to get sweets uh walk us through some of your favorites some of my favorites i do have to start by saying i you know in, in the 15 plus sort of years that we've gotten familiar with uh with the greater la area every community has some really nice nuggets and gems and i may miss some of them these are the places that that i have enjoyed going back to but again you know every turn has a new place every community has a new place every now and then so the a few that i included in the article one of them is um you know, in, in Chino, there is the Swaminarayan Temple or the BAPS. And I love the fact that we have so much variety of, in terms of the sweets that you can find, it's really casual if you go in and you don't want to deal with, you know, don't want to interact with the temple complex itself. It's okay. You can go, there was a small, very uh, casual eatery and they have every possible treat from my childhood and from things that my mom would try to force us to eat you know so it's kind of really uh warm and heartwarming to to feel that um of course I love Artesia so much and the first place that I completely was bowled over was Saffron Spot um happened to go visit them often because they carry something called Faluda and I have really, really fond memories of my father taking me to a Faluda place in Mumbai called Bacha. And that was a absolute childhood treat. It's like an ice cream float and it has a really good quality ice cream. And then there is flavored milk and there are a sweet basil seeds and it's it feels sloppy, but it's just so enjoyable. And Saffron Spot has that. So I was really taken to that. And then just exploring town, Surti Farsan Mart is great. It just reminds me again of some of the Mitai shops uh, that we would go to just about every holiday, but it, they they would become part of our monthly rotation of just going to a Mitai shop, grabbing a bunch of treats. And Surti Farsan Mart has that. They have a very, very large selection. 
Um, I discovered bouquet recently as a, you know, as a newcomer, they carry some excellent, delicious, very, um, very lovely, the flavorful treats from Rajasthan, which is actually my ancestral hometown. And so I was delighted to try the kever and the mawa kachori. And of course, you know, they have a very ex extensive menu. So I would encourage anyone trying to figure out Indian cuisine to definitely check that out. They will, um, they'll blow you away. And I love Fullerton. Fullerton is very hip, very vibrant and both Concept and Spice Social have really nice desserts. They have great food, don't get me wrong, but if I were to only focus on the desserts, I would never leave that part of town because I would be going bouncing from one to the next. Um, they have some, uh, Concept particularly has some really fun desserts that I want, I would like people to check out. Um, their uh, chocolate gulab jamun is awesome. And then, of course, you know, downtown LA, DTLA, like Bar Bar is, is, been, um, is new to town but you know is made a place in my heart they have some really wonderful desserts as well um so you know these are the places that i've loved of course uh, there's a little tiny little eatery in uh, laguna niguel that i discovered on yin kitchen you know they have just the most amazing flavors and it's so casual you never would expect finding all of those flavors there and they're there for our taking How so i would really encourage uh people to just you know, take, take a, make a road trip and just go, you know, dessert hunting. Oh, wonderful. That's, uh, I'm so hungry right now. Also because there is some delicious food in our studio right now, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. But I really recommend that everybody check out, whether you uh, observe Diwali or not, go take a look and learn a little bit about this cuisine. Uh, it's very delicious. Uh, you're missing out if you're not enjoying some of this. That article is called For Your Sweet Tooth, Diwali Indian Treats Around SoCal. You can find it at laist.com. Nandita Godbole, thank you so much for being with us. Of course. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to bring in our next guest who has been patiently hanging out with us here in studio. Anmoldeep Singh is owner of Roots Indian Bistro in West Hollywood, and he's brought some delicious fare. Good morning. How are you? Good, good, good. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're so happy to have you. Um, so uh, tell us just a little bit about your restaurant and then these three dishes that you've brought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Roots Indian Bistro, um, it's a restaurant located on Melrose Avenue in West Hollywood. Um, my dad's been in the industry for over 30 years, been doing it for so long. Um, I've kind of grown into my own, just seeing him in the industry. And um, yeah, in terms of the food here today that we've brought, um, more Diwali-specific dishes, the paneer masala fries on Diwali, like sweets, um, fr fried food is huge. You see the onion pakoras, you see the alu bhaji. Um, but today I brought the paneer masala fries, which is a blend of both Western culture and Eastern culture just because I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Um, so the paneer masala fries, it's topped with paneer masala, which is an onion spice puree with tomato saffron sauce and paneer, which is cottage Punjabi cheese. And the next dessert we have... Wait, let's, before we move yeah, on, yeah. move on. Um, I, yeah, this is a gorgeous bowl. This is, yeah, and it is cool to see. I was surprised to see French fries because I've never seen, I've never seen that, that combination before. Is it okay if we take a little, yeah, a little please. taste? Is that tofu in there too? Paneer. Oh, that's paneer. Yeah. Oh, okay. The cubes are the paneer cheese. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to have to eat some now. I'm eating with my hands. Please forgive me. <laughs> I don't eat too much on the microphone. That might be, um, this was delicious. This was really, really good. Okay. So, um, 
Can you describe what kind of spices go into this? Of course, of course. So um, a huge part of the base of the masala sauce is coriander and fenugreek, mm. which brings that earthy feeling to it. Um, typically, uh, the Punjabi version is butter chicken. It's the butter sauce. And the British, you know, as they colonized India, they created their masala, which they wanted with their stronger IPA beers and oh. whatnot. So um, everyone knows the tikka masala. It's very famous. So we decided to top, you know, crinkle cut french fries with paneer masala and, you know, called it a day. Yeah, it's a delicious day. Good job. <laughs> okay, so that's it. This is a more savory offering. Um, you brought two desserts, it looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's. Where should we start? Let's start with the gulab jamun churros. Churros. Okay, is this like a fusion type yes. thing? Okay, yes. please, please descri- describe everything we're looking at here. Of course. So gulab jamun, it's arguably m- the most famous, I would say, Indian dessert. It's a um, deep fried rose donut hole, if I want to explain it that way. Um, and it's... Uh, I would say mixed with sweet rose water um, and then topped with coconut shavings. Like mentioned, I grew up in L.A., born and raised, so everywhere I would go, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, so I would see churros, you know, where, whether I'm going to the fair with some friends, whether I'm going to the beach, um, just anywhere, I would say. And growing up, uh, there was never that, you know, Indian dessert that I can just take wherever I wanted, like a churro. Mm-hmm. And I just like the texture that Achua brought to the table, which was that crunchy, savory um, aspect to it. So what we decided to do was take that traditional gulab jamun pastry dough, we extrude it into a churro, then we um, top it off with the sweet rose water, and at the end of the day, we just dust it off with uh, pistachio and um, coconut shavings. The, the rose is there. It is so subtle. That is delightful. Yeah, it's cool because it is a little softer than like what I was it would expect from a churro. But mm-hmm. That's because it's not a churro. It's something something new and wonderful. Okay, awesome. Okay, and then it looks like you have some kind of ice cream sandwich thing. Yeah. What yeah. is this? So uh, on Diwali, my mom would always make gajar halva, and so that's a carrot pudding with ghee, which is like clarified butter, mm. um, sweet cream, and raisins as well as grated carrots. So that was the traditional offering. And growing up, uh, I was always looking for the next dessert bar um, for cookies. Uh, you know, Diddy Reese was a huge you know, favorite of mine yeah. in Westwood. So I remember making late night drives out there just to get that. And I just had my mom one day, I was like, I don't want the traditional gajar halva. Make me something, you know, make me a cookie. Hmm. So what she did was uh, she created the gajar halva that she always made. Um, and baked it into a cookie, and then we serve it with ice cream. So mom is to thank for this. There you go. I really like this a lot. I'm a big fan of the of, of the carrot cake kind of flavor, so like the flavor profile, I'm all there. But it's great. It's not too sweet. It's like really balanced. And I haven't had any of the ice cream, but I don't th- even think I need it. I think I would be just happy with this. It's very spongy. Yeah. This is delightful. Thank you. Thank you. So tell me how uh, we, we only have like about a minute left, mm-hmm. but um, I was just hoping you could tell us a little bit of background on the business itself, how your family started this business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like mentioned, um, my dad's been in the industry for 30 years. He moved out here, um, I would say in about, so he was in Germany first, just um, chefing at an Italian bistro over there. Then he moved out here um, and he opened an Indian restaurant in Pasadena uh, with his brothers. And later down, we opened another one on 3rd Street in uh, Los Angeles, California. And about two years ago, right after COVID, actually, we decided to open up Roots. Um, I've thankfully had the chance to, you know, pitch in in terms of ideas and kind of 
mesh both what I've grown up with while still paying homage to my dad's roots back home in Punjab. Wonderful. And what are the names of the other two restaurants? Are they still open? Yes, they are. Yeah. So the one on Third Street is Electric Karma, and the one in Pasadena is All Indie Cafe. Where is that one? Because we're in Pasadena. I just Fair Oaks to... Avenue. I think I've eaten there. Yeah. Okay, yeah. very cool. Very cool. Wonderful. Well, that is Anmol Deep Singh, owner of Roots Indian Bistro in West Hollywood, bringing delicious foods here. Uh, we want to wish everyone a happy Diwali. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Air Talk. We'll be back in just a moment with a conversation about this TikTok trend you may have seen called the bird test. Will your relationship survive? Find out next. It's Air Talk. I'm Julia Paskin in for Austin Cross this Friday. So glad to be with you here on LAist 89.3. So one of the latest TikTok trends making its way across the internet is something called the bird test. We're going to let TikToker Michelle Young explain it to you. It's basically this test to gauge whether or not relationships, especially romantic relationships, are going to be successful. Um, and what you do is you point out something that's meaningless or small. So like seeing a bird out the window and if the person that you're seeing is excited or just like attentive to what you're saying, um, it's a good sign that the relationship's going to last. And if they kind of write you off or don't really care, um, then it's obviously not a good sign. And so I just started seeing somebody, he's about to get here. We're going to put it to the test and see how he does. There's a cardinal. Where? You passed! Really? Aww, you care if I see a cardinal outside? Yeah. Aww, does your partner care if you see a cardinal outside? Well, we want to know why that matters uh, and what that tells us about our relationship. So joining us to talk all about it is Dr. Julie Schwartz-Gottman and Dr. John Gottman. They are married, yes. They're a psychology duo who co-founded the Gottman Institute. Their forthcoming book is... Fight Right, How Successful Couples Turn Conflict into Connection, and they've done the research behind this bird test. Thank you so much to you both for being here. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Julia. So just for, first of all, I want to ask you to double check uh, that definition that we just got from uh, TikToker Michelle Young. Uh, does that pretty much uh, sum up what your theory is? Uh, and if not, if we need to go a little deeper, fill in the blanks for us. Uh, it's pretty close. So here's the story. Uh, we created an apartment lab on the University of Washington campus. We brought couples in to what looked like a B&B, like a, a lovely little Airbnb. However, uh, there were cameras bolted to the walls. We took their urine. We took blood from them. We did blood pressure. We measured their heart rate. But we also filmed them for 24 hours. And it took us seven years to figure this out. That... When one partner made a bid for attention from the other partner and the other partner turned towards the first partner, that's what we called it, which didn't mean physically turning towards them. It meant responding in a way that showed interest, that showed a desire to connect and to communicate. That actually was one of the big signals that a relationship could be successful. Now, what was missed uh, just earlier in the definition 
first of all, is that turning away, which means totally ignoring one partner's uh, bid for attention, also uh, proved bad for a relationship. But there was a third response that proved bad for a relationship, and that was hostility. So if your partner made a bid for attention and you ended up saying to them, hey, stop interrupting me. I'm trying to read. That would be a hostile reaction. And that didn't work. And what we found in the analysis of our data is that the couples who were successful several years down the road, 86% of the time they turned towards their partner. Whereas the couples who were unsuccessful years down the road only turned towards each other 33% of the time. So 86% success, 33% wasn't enough to make the relationship successful. And another thing we discovered was that if you really sort of build this emotional bank account with your partner, when you disagree, you tend to have a sense of humor about yourself and laugh together about things. And if you if you don't have that emotional bank account, then you don't have that wonderful buffer of shared humor during conflict. I, I'm wondering why why a bird and uh, does does it ha does does it not matter? Is it just something just to see? Can you get uh, their attention? Uh, does it have to be something kind of innocuous? Why why a bird? No, actually, it doesn't need to be trivial. It doesn't need to be meaningless. Okay. It doesn't <laughs> definitely need to be a bird. That's pretty <laughs> funny. I I love the title though, the bird test. It's very catchy. Yeah, it is. It's, it. Yeah, it's got a lot of people's yeah, attention. It's, it's wonderful. So anyway, it can be anything. You can call your partner name from another room, uh, wishing them to come and help you in the kitchen. Uh, you might be saying, hey, I'm really feeling sick. I feel terrible. I want to go to bed. And your partner says, don't worry about it, honey. Uh, you go rest and I'll do the dishes. That's also turning toward all those little moments when a need is expressed or there's a bid for just interest or attention. So, you know, there's a million ways to turn towards your partner. Lots of opportunities for that. One of my favorite is if you say, you know, I had a dream last night about your mother. And how does your partner respond to that and say, what? Really? What, <laughs> That's what a loaded question about there, my sir. Mother? <laughs> <laughs> or I just say, oh, could you can you pass the coffee, please? Uh, OK. OK. Yeah. Well, that brings me to my next question, because, I, you know, when you're in a very long term relationship, there is some degree of, I feel like, of tuning out that that happens. And I'm wondering how much of that is natural and how much of that is just outright rightly failing this test. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, the masters, the great relationships are only responding 86 percent of the time. You know, so 14 percent okay. of the time they're just not responding or they're, you know, they're responding with that irritable response. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to be perfect. Mm -hmm. The other thing, too, I think, is that, you know, people say marriage is work or relationship is work. Well, in fact, it really is. And so to sustain a long term relationship one should be paying attention to turning towards continually 
It's not something that, you know, you can just fade out and not have an effect on the relationship. It's going to deeply affect the relationship if you stop turning towards. It'll create worse conflict, a worse sense of friendship, and even worse sex. Okay. Tell us more about that. People, you probably got a lot of people's attention there. <gasps> Woo. Okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> I get, or, or maybe it's not just explicitly about sex, but about intimacy, maybe. Well, yeah, sure. That's right. So uh, when you make a bid for a connection and your partner turns towards you, what that makes you feel, I mean, think about it. It makes you feel important. It makes you feel valued. It makes you feel cherished. All right. It also makes you feel um, really significant to your other. If that is happening, you're going to feel much safer. And especially for women, I think, but for men too, safety, feeling safe, feeling emotionally close is very important in the bedroom. And when partners are turning away from the other or against them in that hostile response, you are not going to feel close. You're not going to feel safe. And so even if you are sexual, it's going to feel more empty because there isn't that deeper sense of connection that's part of it. The little things seem to really add up is what I'm, I'm getting from this. That's Absolutely. right. Yeah, we have a little motto at the Gottman Institute, which is small things often. Or another one, which is every positive thing you do in a relationship is foreplay. Oh, I love that one. <laughs> Those are both good advice from both of you, from a married couple here. Well, just to remind folks, we're talking with Julie Schwartz Gottman and John Gottman, the researcher, psychologist behind this TikTok trend you've seen. It's become a bit of a thing on social media, the bird test, but there is some research, a uh, very real research behind it. Um, okay, so say whatever your version of the bird test is, uh, that your partner fails it. What do you do with that? Um, here's what you do. You go to your partner at a time when you're not needing something and you ask them, you know, can we sit down and talk about something that has been uncomfortable for me? So you don't go critical. You don't go blaming. And you say something like, you know, honey, every time I've been calling to you, uh, and asking you to help me with something, most of the time I'm hearing a no, I'm busy. And I just want to inform you that that's making me feel unimportant, devalued, maybe even disrespected. I'm, I'm feeling like I'm not cared about. And I don't want to feel that way. So can you help me understand what's leading you to be saying no so often? So notice what I'm doing there. What I'm doing is I'm describing myself. I'm describing my own complaint. I'm describing my own feelings. I'm not telling the partner that they're a jerk or they're mean or they're lazy or anything else, which is criticism and a predictor of relationship demise. So I'm describing myself and then I'm asking for what I need and also trying to understand what's going on for uh, my partner that they are turning away from me. Could be something very real, like their hearing is going bad and they can't hear me. Could be uh, that they've got a horrible deadline, they're under terrible stress, they're freaking out, their, their boss is very demanding and they can't take on uh, what I'm needing 
in that time frame. So you never know. You want to understand what's going on with your partner, but also say what you need, positive need. What can help your partner to shine for you? That's what you want to tell them. Wonderful. Uh, and if you want more tips on uh, how to deal with your relationship for better or worse, you can read the forthcoming book, Fight Right, How Successful Couples Turn Conflict into Connection. Our guests have been psychologists and co-founders of the Gottman Institute, Julie Schwartz Gottman and John Gottman. Thank you both so much for being with us and for your research. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Julia. Yeah, this has been fun. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to Air Talk on this Friday. We've got Film Week coming up in just a moment. I'm Julia Paskin. It's been real fun hanging out with you guys today. Have a good weekend and the rest of your Friday. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Manuel Betancourt of Film Quarterly, where he's contributing editor, and Andy Klein, reviewer for AV Club. First up is The Marvels. Brie Larson, a.k.a. Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers in the latest of the Marvel films, has reclaimed her identity from Kree and taken revenge on the supreme intelligence. Uh, the film also stars Iman uh, Villani and is directed by Nia DaCosta uh, and co-written by DaCosta with Megan McDonald and Elisa Karasik. Andy, what'd you think of the Marvels? Oh boy, I am so tired of the MCU and I'm tired of DC. And back in the early 2000s, both of those were putting out some really good films. And now it's the same film over and over and over again. Uh, I don't know why there's still an audience. I will, however, say that this one is directed in an audience that couldn't be further from me the, uh, as possible. It, it is basically for teenage girls. That's the whole orientation here is that 
an average American teenage girl from Jersey City somehow gets linked up to Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel's uh, her sister or her daughter, or whatever, somebody she's alienated from, they haven't talked in years, and the three of them start switching powers and switching locations, and they they all have to go do battle against you know, evil, you know, an evil villain, as the they usual. always do. Yes. Yes. I will say in this case that the evil villain played by Zawe Ashton, uh, she steal, steals the show. She really glowers in a way that, I mean, I was just knocked out. She was the only thing in the film that knocked me out. She had out. you scared in your seat as you watched? I... Uh, no, more than that, she was so evil I was attracted to her. <laughs> um, but, you know, the entire film is the same old, uh, you know, I throw my power bolt at you and you throw your power bolt at me and if I can only get the bracelet off the other person that I'll be able to make cracks in the universe and destroy the reality of the universe. Well, this is the ongoing problem. I mean, this is what the Marvel Universe is dealing with right now, is that viewer fatigue. Yes. And I know the Marvels <laughs> is tracking behind uh, what they were hoping for audience awareness and interest. Well, and I suspect that since a lot of the audience always was teenage boys and young men, I don't think they're going to relate to this. I mean, it's great that it's in all... I mean, all the heroes are women, all the villains are women. I mean, basically, men are like little side characters. Uh-huh. Um, but it it's just, uh, it's really juvenile. Uh, and at the same time, I don't know what the rating is, but, you know, I mean, you have some real gore. You have a huge flock of carnivorous cats who will just like zip and eat a person in no time flat. It's so, PG-13. So I guess that's the carnivorous cats. Yeah, probably so. Brie Larson stars in The Marvels, directed and co-written by Nia DaCosta. The film's rated PG-13 in wide release. It's a Wonderful Knife, a comedic horror mystery, stars Justin Long, Cassandra No, and Jane Widop. The film's directed by Tyler McIntyre, and Michael Kennedy wrote the screenplay of it's a Wonderful Knife, set on Christmas Eve. Manuel. I, I wanted to like this more. It's one of those, like, this is the title that tells you exactly what this movie is. Uh, someone pitched it as, It's a Wonderful Life, but it's a slasher. <laughs> Weirdly. And that, I, I was kind of intrigued by it. So this young woman, fi- like, wishes that she'd never been born because the, the year before she had to kill a serial killer uh, and that's sort of weighing on her and then she wakes up and it's Christmas Eve and she was never born and somehow the town is even worse and her family has gotten worse and it's up to her to you know kill the serial killer again and unravel sort of this life and get back to where she was and of course in the process she learns that you know the life that she had was a lot better than she thought she uh, she did um it really wants to be sort of a modern scream. It has that kind of sort of like comedic. Uh, it's not quite as punchy as scream. Uh, it's not quite as well directed as scream. Like you miss Wes Craven's like real ability to sort of make you um, hesitate and be on the edge of your seat. It's like, oh my god, are they really gonna get 
slash will he be able to get away will he be able to run will he be able and it, this it, it's all a little too too contrived and i just i was never i was never worried for anyone involved which is not a thing you want to be saying about a slasher what about the comedic elements of it manuel was it funny at points it is funny at points and justin long and joel McHale, you know they're both very funny actors and the and the two um teenage leads female leads are, are sort of great but i just i, I just I wanted more. I think it's such a, it was such an intriguing and fun sort of logline premise that I don't think they sort of took advantage of it all. It's a wonderful knife. Andy? Almost total agreement. Um, it was nice to see Justin Long playing evil, which I don't think I've ever seen him do before because he's such a likable screen presence. Uh, there were some plot things that, I mean, it's not It's a Wonderful Life. It wants to sort of be, <laughs> and you can tell shot for shot, technique for technique, that it's not as well made. Uh, it's a clever concept. Uh, for half the film, you're saying, why doesn't she realize that she just did It's a Wonderful Life and go back to the bridge <laughs> and wish for her life back? And you discover at a certain point she refers to a friend as her Clarence, right. which means she does know the film and she still doesn't think to go back to the bridge until right near the end of the film. And that just drove me bonkers. It's a wonderful knife in select theaters. It's rated R starring Justin Long, Cassandra No, Jane Whittup and Joel McHale. Tyler McIntyre is the director. Uh, Yesabel is uh, a Spanish film uh, that uh, tells uh, the story of uh, wealthy young adults, four best friends, and their hedonistic life uh, that comes to an abrupt end. It's a crime thriller. The film is directed by Hernan Yabez Aguia. Uh, the film is also uh, co-written with Aguila. Manuel, what did you think of Yesabel? Uh, so I grew up in Colombia, which is near, it's next door to Venezuela, and I went to a private school with a lot of privileged um, kids that felt very familiar when I started watching this film. Uh, these people who move through life with sort of careless abandon and have no regard for people who are not of their status, who are not of their uh, up to par. Um, so I, I was already sort of um, pulled in. Uh, and there is a murder at the, at the at the heart of it, but sort of the story really takes place like 16 years later when the one boy who was part of this um, group of friends uh, seems to be guilt-ridden and wants to sort of... Um, is forced to sort of think back to what happened and why happened, why everything sort of went awry and why his friend died. Um it's a little bit of a thriller and it's a little bit of a mystery and it slowly unfurls and it gets uh, sort of darker and twisted and it is very hedonistic. But to me, this was a story about injustice and about impunity and about how the privileged really can move through the world with no consequences. Uh, it's set against the backdrop of Venezuela and so Maduro is very much sort of in the background. It's not really at the center. But I thought what it's trying to say uh, about what it means to live in a country where justice is never served um, was really, um, I, I, I feel very touching to me. We're talking about uh, the Venezuelan film, Yesavel. What did you think, Andy? Uh, I liked it less. I mean, part of the problem is that all the major characters are terrible people, as you, as you have stated. I mean, they're the worst entitled, privileged people in the world. And... It sort of ends with what I consider an Agatha Christie trick that I did not appreciate. 
Uh, it's a film where I feel like the allegory, which they discuss openly about that you have to own up to the crimes of the past, and they're talking about the government, is driving the narrative rather than the story. And that, for me, is always a problem. We're talking about Iezabel. The film is unrated in Spanish with English subtitles, and the film is available on demand. The documentary Albert Brooks, Defending My Life, uh, which, of course, is a reference to one of his terrific comedies. The film's made by his longtime friend, Rob Reiner, and includes interviews with many, many people who've worked with or known Brooks over many years. Andy, what did you think of this doc? I loved this. This was by far the most enjoyable thing I saw this week, partly because it's Albert Brooks. <laughs> And I love Albert Brooks, and it's him and Rob Reiner sitting down. They've known each other since high school. And uh, sort of going over his career with lots of clips and reminders of how brilliant those films were. Uh, almost every one of them, except maybe uh, the Muslim world one, I thought was not so great. And the muse was not so great. But it also deals with his straight acting. And you have testimonials by virtually everybody, Wanda Sykes and Conan O'Brien. And uh, Letterman says, I wish I had had Albert's career rather than my own career. Wow, wow. And the, both of these guys are really funny together. And the, the whole thing was just a Frickin' delight. Albert Brooks, defending my life. Manuel. I I will be the dissenting opinion on this one. Okay. Uh, I think if you love Albert Brooks, you're going to love Albert Brooks, defending my life. Uh, given the structure, which is Rob and Albert sort of talking and they're sitting and they've just had dinner and they're just reminiscing, uh, it makes for a kind of very insular um sort of film so it's like remember when you did this oh yes i do remember when you did this roll the clip oh remember when you did that oh yes i love doing that let's roll the clip remember when we did this remember you did... and there's a lot of like back and forth that it feels like as a portfolio of brooks's career it's fascinating i don't know if i got a lot of insight into brooks as a as a performer or as a comedian um, that his work hadn't already given me. So the clips are very self-revealing, but the conversation felt to me uh, like you're just hanging out with him. And, and do you think there was a problem that he and Reiner have been friends? For, would have been better someone without the personal connection? I hope so. I think so. And it's one of those, like, they do have amazing people, but they use, like, 10 seconds of Sharon Stone and they use 10 seconds of Wanda Sykes and 10 seconds of Chris Rock. Letterman gets a little bit more more airtime. Um uh, but I just, it's not really it, its not really as comprehensive as I would have wanted because Brooks is such a towering comedic uh, sort of figure. I just, there's so much there and it ends up being sort of a clip show, which is entertaining. Well, as a fan of Brooks, I'm, I'm sure I'll be watching this one. Albert Brooks' Defending My Life is unrated and it's streaming on Max. Who I Am Not, a South African set uh, film. Uh, the film is unrated. Manuel, we have a couple minutes before our break. Please tell us about Who I Am Not. And it's uh, it's a documentary about two intersex South Africans. Yeah, um, it really works as a primer on what intersex is and how uh, these two individuals are sort of stuck between knowing that the world wants to slot them into you're either born male or you're the born female. But of course, their phenotype and their genotype um, are proof that such clear distinctions are sort of impossible to draw. Um, 
and they're dealing with the kinds of surgeries that they were uh, they were done on them as a kid, uh, as a kid, and they're trying to sort of figure out how to live their lives. It's very touching. It's very informative. Um, I was really taken with sort of the grace and the humanity with which it treats it, both, both its subjects. Who I Am Not, the film is directed by Tunde Skovran, a feature directorial debut for her. Uh, Who I Am Not is unrated, and it's in English and uh, the uh, Sesotho language as well. And uh, you can see it at Lemley's NoHo 7 in North Hollywood. When we come back, we'll be hearing about Your Lucky Day, a thriller starring the late Angus Cloud, along with Elliot Knight and Jessica Garza, Daniel Brown, the writer and director. And we've got a documentary about Bella Lewitsky, the dancer, choreographer, and arts activist uh, with such an influential career, described as a uniquely Californian artist. And we'll find out about that, uh, Bella Lewitsky's life told in the documentary, Bella. That and much more is coming up up on Film Week here on LAist 89.3. That's just to come. And then later this hour, we'll be talking about Charlie Chaplin, a new biography of Chaplin, focusing on the time when he could not come back to the United States. We'll be back in just a minute. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. Larry Mantel with critics Andy Klein and Manuel Betancourt. Next up, Your Lucky Day, a thriller starring the late Angus Cloud, who died just a few months ago of an accidental overdose. He was one of the stars of the series Euphoria. Also in the cast of Your Lucky Day, Elliot Knight and Jessica Garza. The film's written and directed by Daniel Brown. Andy, what did you think of Your Lucky Day? Well, now I know why Angus Cloud was so convincing in this part. He's playing a dirt-poor, drug-dealing lowlife who walks into what's essentially a 7-Eleven, some kind of mini-mart, just as somebody buys a lottery ticket that wins the $156 million jackpot. So, of course, he tries to hold the guy up. Mayhem happens. A cop wanders by and get shot and the people in there the the clerk and a young couple who were just there to get some ice cream everybody's working an angle it turns out every time you think somebody in this film is doing something that doesn't make sense you realize eventually no they've got an angle to get the money uh the cop who gets shot you're wondering why does he call his dad rather than calling 911 and the reason he does is he and his dad want that 156 million dollars and it's very well worked out um fairly gruesome uh but i thought totally compelling and you know suspenseful all the way through the film is Your Lucky Day, starring Angus Cloud. It's rated R. You can see it at the Alamo Draft House in downtown Los Angeles. Bella, a documentary about the dancer and choreographer based right here in Los Angeles, Bella Lewitsky. Bridget Murnane is the director of the doc. Andy. Um, I have broad cultural interests, but modern dance is not among them. And yet I found this uh, really a pretty riveting documentary, even though essentially it was subject matter that 
you know, theoretically, I'm not interested in. Uh, we follow the career of Bela Lewitsky, who died, I guess, about 20 years ago, 15 or 20 years ago, who became the central figure in L.A. modern dance, uh, starting out New York and moving here and loving it here. Uh, the film interviews lots of people, including lots of interviews with her, and has excerpts from ballets that are not ballet. She would make a point. It's not ballet. It's modern dance that sometimes were quite baffling to me because they are so abstract. Uh, but for a story that I was not inherently interested in, I found this documentary totally interesting. Well, and that's the mark of a good doc, yeah. right? You're sitting down to watch something you have no interest in. The next mm -hmm. thing you know, you're totally enthralled with it. Absolutely. Uh, we're talking about Bella, the documentary about the life, work, and influence of L.A.-based dancer and choreographer and arts activist Bella Lewitsky. Uh, Bridget Murnane is the director. The documentary is unrated, and you can see it at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. This Much We Know, also a documentary uh, which looks at the suicide of Las Vegas teenager Levi Presley. But um, the filmmaker uncovers uh, the story of suicide in Las Vegas, the highest rate in the country, according to the film. The movie is uh, directed by L. Francis Henderson. Manuel, what did you think of This Much We Know? This is, um, I'm, I, I struggle a little bit with this film because I think it, it's very, its heart is on its right place. Um, so, yeah, in 2002, this 16-year-old went all the way up to the stratosphere um, in Las Vegas, climbed out the fence, and then jumped. And um, the filmmaker is driven by her desire to sort of make sense of suicide, which is, of course, a futile effort, um, because one of her friends uh, had taken her life um, years before, and she's sort of she's still, she's still haunted. So she wanted to make a movie about um, suicide, and this leads her to Levi's story and to Vegas, who, which is apparently the the suicide capital of the United States. Um, and in a sort of diaristic, sort of memoiry, kind of essayistic, very poetic kind of way, she's trying to sort through her own feelings, through Levi's family's and friends' feelings, you know, uh, almost 20 years since he since he took his life. Uh, she's doing a lot of research. She ends up talking about the Yucca uh, Valley Nuclear Waste Project, which may have something to do with why people in the city feel so adrift and groundedless. And so there's a lot of scientific research and a lot of philosophical research and some meditations and a lot of interviews. There's even some psychics and phone psychics that were calling on the phone. It's that the movie's a little bit all over the place, but it really is brought together by, by the filmmaker who's just, it's grasping at straws, trying to make sense of the sort of the, that something that's senseless. And I, I thought there was like a modest ambition there. And I was really taken by it, even though I don't, I didn't, I wasn't there for the entire ride, but um, it's, it's very moving. And it's, um, I think, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be thinking about a lot of things that, yeah. I, that I brought up. Well, it's, it's funny because Las Vegas, so much of the theory about why the divorce rate is so high, suicide rate, is that 
it's kind of the last stop for a lot of people. It's the place people go where you're almost guaranteed a job if if you can work with the public because of the huge hospitality industry. Housing has been historically comparatively inexpensive. So it's and people go there just like Southern California yeah. has been historically to reinvent themselves. Yeah. And Vegas has has offered the way to do that professionally and in many ways relationally and personally. So I've always sort of attributed the sort of tragic flip side to that. There's so many people that are kind of, this is the last step. And they're struggling. And I think this is why this 16-year-old story ends up being sort of an exception, because you could understand someone later in age taking their life, but a 16-year-old who had no signs of depression, had like clearly is is a textbook exemption. Like they're like there was nothing pointed at it. There was no family history. There was no nothing. And so that's why the the, the mystery of the heart of the movie is sort of then hard to solve because you can't every time she points at something like his it story doesn't apply it, it here. doesn't apply here. And so wow, sounds like a powerful film. This much we know is unrated. It's at Lemley's Monica Film Center. Uh, next Wednesday, the 15th. Uh, That's the day that it opens. As We Know It is set in late 1990s Los Angeles, a horror comedy that stars Mike Castle, Oliver Cooper, Taylor Blackwell, and Chris Parnell. Pam Greer is in the cast, always a great thing. Josh Monkarsh directed the film and also co-wrote it with Brandon DiPaolo and Christopher Francis. Andy, what did you think of As We Know It? Uh, (laughs) Well, how many zombie apocalypse movies can we take? Uh, In this case, the funny part is that the zombie apocalypse is somehow triggered by a popular brand of soy milk. And so the Hollywood Hills is totally infested (laughs) with zombies. And the entire thing takes place in the Hollywood Hills with zombies wandering around in this one household uh, where a guy and his best friend are holed up and eventually the ex-girlfriend of one of them. Uh, Pam Greer is only there for maybe four minutes total on screen, but she's still Pam Greer, and it's great to see her. Yeah. Uh, the lead kind of looks like Mark Duplass, and a lot about this film reminded me of Duplass Brothers films in that it feels almost improvised. It feels kind of mumblecore to me, uh, and unfortunately not that well improvised. At the very end, there's a two-minute segment during the credits that's an interview with uh, Chris Parnell and one of the characters, Chris Parnell, playing a newsman. And it's just dull, and they're clearly improvising, and there's nothing there. And I felt the film just kind of laid flat. As We Know It is the comedy horror film. Manuel, what did you think? Yeah, all I keep wondering was why, and why is it a zombie movie? Why? Because it's... It's this weird thing, like I, the breakup seems to be the key, the core emotional tenet of the, of the film, but that seems divorced from the zombie apocalypse that's happening outside, because it's not a, like, let's let, we need to go fight zombies, it's like we need to hold ourselves up and deal with our emotional issues in this house. It's also set in the late 90s, which I can only imagine is so that they could not have smartphones on the <laughs> in the film, because somehow this, this person who's in this house doesn't know the zombie apocalypse is happening. It's because he hasn't turned on the news, which, again, would, it's only a sad thing that happened with, back in the 90s. With his 26-inch CRT TV right. <laughs> and his laser disc player. Yeah. yeah, and there's a lot. that It also makes for a lot of Waterworld jokes. Uh, I don't know how many people are in the uh, market for Waterworld jokes, but if you are, um, as we know, it truly delivers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> faint praise, but I think that's as much. 
much as I can give it. As we know it, a horror comedy. It's at Lemley's Monica Film Center, opening next Wednesday, the 15th. Josh Monkars, the director and co-screenwriter. It's rated R. The action comedy Adventures of the Naked Umbrella stars Jeremy Davis, Taryn Manning, and Richard Riley. Uh, the film's written and directed by Gerald Brunskill. Andy? This seems to—I guess Jeremy Davies changed his name to Davis for not to be confused or something. But uh, this is him at his most Jeremy Davies. You may remember him from Spanking the Monkey, where he was great. And then a number of films where he plays— wigged out, freaked out characters, always hysterical. And he's playing one of those characters here. We've seen him do it before. He's a podcaster, and his, the title of the film is the title of his podcast, and he's obsessed with UFOs. And he's clearly kind of psycho, and people are getting murdered. And uh, it just felt almost totally random to me. Uh it just goes on and weird and wacky things happen that are unfortunately generally not very funny weird and wacky things. Adventures of the Naked Umbrella, starring Jeremy Davis and Taryn Manning, written and directed by Gerald Brunskill. It's unrated and it's available both on demand and at Lemley's Glendale Theater in Glendale. Gentlemen, coming up, we're going to be talking about Charlie Chaplin and particularly uh, the period where he's persona non grata in the United States, uh, dealing with a variety of challenges, including sex allegations, uh, political allegations against him. Scott Iman, uh, who's uh, author of the new book, Charlie Chaplin versus America, is going to join us. But Andy, I want to start with you, just your thoughts about the importance of Chaplin as a filmmaker. And you could do whole film school courses just on him, but what makes him such a great filmmaker? Well, he was the first great universal movie star for the first, you know, it's one part. He was the most identifiable man in the world because silent films traveled. And uh, the fact is that his work started out very good and got great. And as he developed his chops as a filmmaker, uh, he moved past that two, three, four real format into features that were profound, that were beautifully directed, that weren't just funny, uh, with great technique. I mean, he's simply, you know, an overreaching figure in film history. You, you ever think about what he would have done had he been able to come back to the U.S. and resume his career? I I think about that, but it's unfortunate that the last two films he made were not very good. Uh, the King in New York, which he made abroad in the 50s, and then Countess from Hong Kong with Marlon Brando and Sophia Loren. Uh, and you, it did feel as though he had stayed past his expiration date. I hate to say that for a guy who was so brilliant. Who did, did a great mo- dictator. Modern and, yeah. times and, and great dictator and city lights above all else. Uh, he just seemed to have lost his muse or it was the conditions of 
his life. Well, that's what he, I was wondering. If that took a toll, all the stressful events. So. Manuel, your your thoughts about the legacy of Chaplin? Yeah. To me, whenever it's funny, I was just watching Bertolucci's The Last Dreamers, where they have this extended conversation between mm-hmm. whether you're a Chaplin or a Keaton fan. Uh, and I've always been I've always been more of a Keaton fan. But the thing that I've always been bowled over by Chaplin is his expressiveness. So I think of him as a performer, and I think he was one of those people who really the physicality and the texturedness that he brought to a performance, which is his face, because sometimes that's all he had to work with. He really had a great command of his instrument and really knew how to capture himself and really, it makes sense why millions and millions of people all over the world continue mm-hmm. to find him enthralling and fascinating and will continue to see all of his films and find something to just to be in awe of. I find it so hard to choose between Keaton and, yeah. <laughs> and Chaplin and Lloyd. I mean, all all three, uh, it's just, it's like who I've seen most recently in a film, having seen um, um, most of all of, you know, the films of those three filmmakers. And each is just such a unique genius. Yeah. And we don't have to choose, right? And I think that's the other right. part. It's yeah. like we have them all, and there's no reason to pit them against each other. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's going to come up uh, right after our break. Scott Iman with us, Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. We'll talk about that uh, aspect of Chaplin's life after he had made these classic American films. It's Film Week, our critics this week, Manuel Betancourt of Film Quarterly, Andy Klein of AV Club, And if you didn't hear their reviews earlier of uh, films like the documentary Bella on Bella Lewitsky or The Marvel starring Brie Larson or a horror mystery comedy, It's a Wonderful Knife, you can hear those reviews and the entirety of Film Week wherever you get your podcasts or at LAS.com. Be back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. It's Film Week on L.A. at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with biographer Scott Iman, who's done such terrific books on John Wayne and Cary Grant. His new book, Charlie Chaplin vs. America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. You just heard our Film Week critics talking about the genius of Chaplin, the filmmaker. Now we look at this period of his life where he becomes persona non grata in the United States. He's dealing with his personal relationships that are causing tumult in his life. He goes on trial. His life is essentially falling apart despite him being a film icon. Thanks so much, Scott, for joining us. We appreciate it. This must have just uh, taken a tremendous amount of research to go through 
all the different source material for chronicling this part of a chaplain's life. Well, yes, but there was a pandemic on, so I had nothing but time. <laughs> <laughs> I sat at home, and 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 uh, the chaplain archive is digitized. So, you so were able to... I was able to access stuff through the computer, which was I couldn't have written the book otherwise, you know. Uh, because the libraries were all closed, and the, the period I tend to write about, the, uh, quote, golden age of Hollywood, unquote, uh, as it recedes further into the past, it's more a question of archival research than it is of actual human beings to talk to. Mm-hmm. Most of them are at Forest Lawn. Yeah, wow. So uh, the, uh, the chaplain, the digitization of the chaplain archive was invaluable to me. You know, I, I remember so well as a teenager, the 1972 Oscars, when he gets the Lifetime Achievement Award. And I, of course, I knew who he was, but it had limited exposure to his films. It would be later years that I went back and saw the Chaplin greats. But um, I was just struck by the adulation of the film community for this man. And my sense was it wasn't just for the greatness of his films, but for what he had endured as a result of the United States turning its back on him. You know, Take us back to 72 and what that event symbolized. Well, he had been kicked out of the country in September of 1952. So it's almost 20 years later. Uh, he had not set foot back in America in the tw- intervening 20 years. Uh, after his reentry permit was revoked by uh, the attorney general, Harry Truman's attorney general, uh, and he was basically uh, kicked out of the country. Uh, he was outraged, angry, uh, thoroughly uh, out of sorts, whatever, uh, uh, however you want to phrase it. But, I mean, his letters that he wrote after he settled in Switzerland about uh, six, eight months later, are two friends like James A. G. and Clifford Odets, uh, good friends that he had in California, and Leon Fuchtwanger, the author of Jesus, and his wife. Uh, he had a small but very close-knit circle of friends. Uh, they're full of uh, unprocessed anger, as he put it in, in one letter, I wouldn't go back there if Jesus Christ was president. Wow. <laughs> so it took 20 years, basically. And part of his, his uh, alienation from America, aside from... Uh, uh, what amounted to 10 to 12 years of character assassination uh, and disinformation was the fact that by 1952, when he was kicked out of the country, there was nobody left to stand up for him. Hollywood, the the blacklist was in full tilt. Most of the blacklistees were uh, dying, dead, moved to Mexico, moved to London or in New York City. There was nobody living in Los Angeles and getting any work, really. Uh, So when he got kicked out of the country, there were only three people in Hollywood, really, who stood up to uh, uh, stood up for him and said this was a, uh, a terrible miscarriage of justice. And it was Sam Goldwyn, uh, William Wyler, and Cary Grant. Now, there were a lot of leftists in Hollywood at the time. Why does he become such an—is it that he was British that enabled them to keep him out of the country? No. Well, he, was, he had never become an American citizen. He was always a resident alien. Uh, and he paid his taxes here and everything else. But he had never technically become a citizen. So whenever he left the country, which was infrequently, he hadn't been out of the country in 20 years, since 1931, because uh, he was a workaholic, basically. He simply didn't his like— The studio to, on La Brea. The studio on La Brea. He didn't like to be torn away from his, his, his core, and his core was the studio. Uh, so when he was torn away uh, involuntarily, it was a terrible psychic shock. You know, he's in the middle of the Pacific one day out of New York and the Queen Elizabeth, and he gets this notice that he has to reapply for his reentry permit. Now, what he did not know was that a week after uh, he was uh, his reentry permit was revoked, 
the INS had a meeting at which they uh, came to the uh, agreement that if he did come back, they'd have to let him back in the country because he'd never been convicted of a felony, never been convicted of anything, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, he, there was no legal basis for excluding him from the country. Uh, but he did not know that, and his back was thoroughly up, and he didn't want to be invited to a party, reinvited to a party where he'd been kicked out already. So he decided to uh, reinvent his life in Europe. He bought a manor house in Switzerland for his growing family, his wife, and he had four children at that point, whether they ended up having another four, eight in all, uh, four in Switzerland, four in America. So it was a complete uh, jumping of the rails, as it were. Of his of the momentum he'd built up since 1913 when he uh, started working in American movies. So uh, uh, more than a decade before uh, these events you're just talking about, he makes *The Great Dictator*, uh, a film in in which first film with dialogue, uh, earns five Oscars, including nominations for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Screenplay, all those nominations. But its politics are really front and center, including this speech that he gives at the end of the film. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. As Charlie Chaplin in the final speech from The Great Dictator, which is his uh, satire and commentary on fascism and on Adolf Hitler, uh, did he spend considerable time crafting that speech? Do you know? The speech was always uh, going to be the ending of the film. Uh, It went through... Innumerable drafts. There are uh, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of pages, sometimes just a phrase, sometimes a sentence, sometimes an entire paragraph. Uh, and he wrestled with it throughout the production of the picture uh, because it, it, if you've seen the picture, it's directly addressed to the camera. He steps out of mm-hmm. character. He's yeah. not speaking as the tramp. He's, he's, not he's in, as... wearing the, the yes. uh, costume, as I recall, though, of the character. Correct, correct. But he, he, as the camera moves in, he looks at the camera and he doesn't speak as the character. He's playing the little Jewish barber who's mistaken for Hinkle, the dictator of Tomania. Uh, he speaks to the camera, and he s- speaks as Charlie Chaplin. Uh, this was always going to be the ending of the film. Uh, the question is, what does he say? So it, was, it went through innumerable drafts throughout the production of the picture, and it was a long production, of, uh, and it was a picture really no one wanted to make except him. Franklin Roosevelt wanted the picture made. But nobody in Hollywood wanted the picture made. Uh, even the British Foreign Office didn't want the picture made because Neville Chamberlain was the prime minister, and he was attempting to buy Hitler off. 
uh, and and Chaplin understood, as Roosevelt did and as Churchill did, that Hitler was not going to be bargained with, that he was a mad dog, and you have to put a mad dog down. Uh, the only way to do it is to fight. Uh, so there's a letter in the book from Jack Warner, who had just emerged from a meeting with Franklin Roosevelt in the Oval Office. And o- o- Roosevelt had brought up Chaplin's plans to make the great dictator, which were in flux, and this is in 1939 now. Uh, and he hasn't started shooting yet. And he's one week he's going to do it, another week he's thinking about it. And Roosevelt said he really hoped Chaplin would go ahead and make the picture that it was important. And he thought it would make a big effort because at the time, at the end of 1939, America's an isolationist country. Congress is isolationist. The American public's isolationist. The Jews were not our problem. The Nazis were not our problem. Roosevelt knew better, and Chaplin did too. But he wanted the picture made. And finally, uh, Chaplin in September 1939 uh, began shooting but it didn't come out until October of 1940. And everybody said it was going to be a catastrophe because in the intervening period, nothing had changed. America was still isolationist Mm -hmm. in October of 1940. We didn't become interventionist until Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. But as it happened, the film was a huge commercial and largely a huge critical success as well. So he got away with it, even though everybody was saying they weren't even sure it was going to be released. And he said, I don't care, I'll rent halls, I'll put up tents, the picture will be shown, you know, if I have to, if I have to. We're talking about Charlie Chaplin, his legacy, the politics of Chaplin, and Scott Iman's new book, Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. We'll be back with more with Scott in just a minute. It's Film Week on L.A. at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with noted biographer Scott Iman. His new book, Charlie Chaplin vs. America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided, takes us back to this period of Chaplin's life where, following his tremendous success as a filmmaker, he uh, is out of the United States, doesn't see himself as able to return, and lives a life in exile for the intervening decades. And there were multiple reasons for that, which Scott details in the book. We're talking about the speech at the end of The Last Dictator, the whole satirical um, take on, on fascism and essentially on Hitler. Um, was there response from the right wing of America that was negative to that film, which sort of put Chaplin on the radar, uh, made him a critical figure? The Great Dictator is the definitive example of premature anti-fascism. Even as the picture was being made, columnists like Hedda Hopper uh, were, were, were writing that, A, the picture would probably never be released, and if it was released, it would be a catastrophe because nobody would go to see it, because nobody wanted to be bothered with all that silliness that was going on in Europe. Uh, the picture itself proved them wrong, but it put him, shall we say, on the wanted list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, shortly after The Great Dictator, about 18 months after The Great Dictator was released, he began making speeches after Pearl Harbor for uh, America to open a second front to aid Russia, who had become our allies after, uh, uh, after the uh, beginning of the war for America. And for the right wing in America at that time, Russia could never be our ally. They were simply an enemy in waiting. And But Chaplin's th- feeling was simply uh, the sooner Hitler is defeated, the sooner we can all resume our lives. Uh, and uh, anything that aids Russia will aid in defeating Hitler. 
the logic was there, but uh, again, nobody wanted to. A lot of people in America didn't see it that way. So he's an anti-fascist, but what what are his politics beyond that? Uh, his politics were kind of utopian. Uh, he never uh, he never voted in America. He wasn't a citizen. Uh, he he was a. Uh, uh, I thought about calling him, referring to him in the book as a champagne socialist, but. Uh, I thought that would be unfair because he lived his politics in a way that very few people do. And champagne socialist implies a certain triviality, a certain uh, not lack of seriousness. He was very serious uh, because he bet everything. Uh, he he was a man who always who always interacted with his times, you know, in the same way that Picasso did. Uh, during the Depression, he made modern times where, where everything is destabilized and, and the tramp and everybody else has to just keep moving, where there is no permanence to be found because of economic conditions. The great dictator d- uh, takes on fascism. Um, Cherverdeau takes on uh, mass murder. Uh, he always interacted with his times. That was part of his idea of what an artist needed to be. Uh, the FBI investigated him for 12 years and counting. Uh, desperately trying to find evidence of communist membership, sympathies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He was never a member of the Communist Party. He never donated a dime to the Communist Party. He never went to a communist meeting. And the idea, the very idea of someone as reflexively, uh, ferociously independent as Chaplin was, aligning himself with any kind of political movement that was completely top-down in nature, it was intrinsically absurd. And if anybody had thought about it for more than 10 minutes, they would have realized that. But it wasn't that kind of time where any kind of nuanced thinking was uh, was being uh, done. On the sexual side of, of his behavior, when does the American public start becoming aware of the relationships that he's had with with girls who are not yet of age? His second wife, uh, Lita Gray, who he married in 1924, was 16 years old and pregnant at the time of their marriage. Uh, he paid a doctor to falsify the birth certificate of, of his first child with her. Uh, because she had been pregnant while they were, before they were married, uh, the divorce from her came two years later. It was catastrophic. It, it meant he had to pay the largest divorce settlement in California history up to that time, and it got it occasioned a great deal of negative comments at the time. Uh, his his next relationship was with Paulette Goddard, a beautiful uh, young actress in her twenties at the time, uh, who he made a star with Modern Times and The Great Dictator. Uh, they lived together openly. They told people they were married. Everybody assumed they were married. They were never married. I believe the phrase is shacked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did go through a Mexican divorce uh, in uh, after the great dictator in order to give the impression that they had been married in the first place. That's pretty unique <laughs> to go through an unnecessary divorce to pretend you'd been married. It was protective coloration for her career because she had just lost out on the Scarlett O'Hara, part of Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind, when David Selznick had hired Vivian Lee, who was, I think, a better actress than Paula Goddard was. Uh, but the fact that she was uh, living with Chaplin and nobody was quite sure if they were married or not may have been a factor. What nobody knew in the public was that Vivian Lee was living with a Laurence Olivier at the time, and they weren't married either. Mm. But the Vivian Lee-Laurence Olivier relationship wasn't public knowledge, whereas Chaplin and Goddard were. Because they've been on screen together. Exactly. And, had, and it know. was known that they, you know, she was yeah. living in his house, et cetera, et cetera. So they went through this <laughs> Mexican divorce in order to give the impression they'd been married, but they never were married. 
So, uh, and shortly after that, he became involved with a woman named Joan Barry, who was 22 or 23 at the time, who had been the mistress of J. Paul Getty uh, in Oklahoma a little bit earlier. Uh, Joan Barry thought it would be fun to go into the movie business. She thought she could be an actress. So she came to Hollywood with a letter of introduction. She met Chaplin. One thing led to another. They became lovers. He signed her to a contract. He started giving her acting lessons, signed her up at Max Reinhardt's studio in Hollywood for acting lessons. She was bored. She didn't really have the temperament to to buckle down and study and to take things seriously. Uh, They were together for about a year. She left, went back to Oklahoma, J. Paul Getty, and then came back after some months to uh, California and announced to Chaplin she was pregnant and he was the father. And he did the math, and he realized he couldn't be the father. She insisted he was the father. And they did a blood test. And they, it, uh, Yes, they did a blood test, uh, which proved he was not the father. But at that child. time, as you write, they didn't accept that as definitive. Not in California. It was not dispositive by itself. The jury could ignore the blood test if they so chose. And they did. Which is exactly what they did when the paternity uh, 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 trial came to uh, court. Uh, the blood test was entered into the, the jury, shook their heads and said, guilty. Uh, Chaplin tried to appeal. The appeal, appeal was denied. So for the next 18 years of his life, he had to pay child support for a child that wasn't his, which was another burr under his saddle. Uh, I guess you could call it a miscarriage of justice. But the fact that he was this time uh, 53 or so, and she was 22 or 23, and they had had uh, a sexual relationship, which he didn't try to deny, uh, also mitigated against him. And as the, tri- the paternity trial was getting underway, he married Una O'Neill, the daughter of Eugene O'Neill. And how old was she? She was 18. Okay. And uh, that seemed to confirm everybody's deepest, darkest suspicions about his uh, sexual proclivities. And she, they would be together how many years until his the death? The rest of his life. They yeah. were together uh, 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 34 years. Scott, 34 years. thank you so much for coming in and talking about Charlie Chaplin versus America when art, sex, and politics collided. Another wonderful book, and we appreciate you talking with us. Thank about. you, Larry. It's been great. Thanks so much. Scott Iman, the author of the new book. Thank you so much for joining us on Film Week on LAS 89.3. Have a wonderful weekend. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.